Morning, BCC. Uh, how are you all doing? We all good? Okay, so we're looking at quite a big subject today, uh, but I want to open by a, a little bit of a story. Uh, back in 1990, I had a chance to travel around India uh, with a friend uh, on an Ind Rail Pass, and we went to all these different cities on the train. It took about two months. And one of the journeys, um, we were in Bombay Station. It was Bombay back then. It's Mumbai now. And I picked up a Times of India newspaper to read on the train. Now, this Times of newspaper, uh, Times newspaper, I don't know if you know about uh, in English publications at all, but the Times of India is still, to this day, the widest printed daily English publication that there is. It's got millions and millions of people who read it, and it did back then as well. And on this newspaper, on this particular day, there was a quarter-page advert on the front page for a group of hotels called the Taj International Hotel Group. And what they had was they had a picture of a tower block in the background, and that was the hotel. And then they had this kind of garden scene in front of it with a little pathway going up it. And the idea was that it was like to represent what a tranquil, peaceful time you would have staying at their hotel. But their strap line underneath this advert, in quotes, was, we like to lead everyone up the garden path. Now, for the people in the, in the congregation who don't speak English, uh, that's no problem. That, why wouldn't you want to have that? That's a great thing to say because it's saying, when you come to our hotels, you're going to relax. It's going to be like being in a garden. It's going to be great. For English, British speakers, that's, a, that's not the phrase you would want to say. Because leading somebody up the garden path is that you are taking them on a deceitful journey. You're going to be tricking them in some way. And so that's useful for you guys. If you ever hear that phrase spoken around the streets in Birmingham, you need to watch out. Because if it's an English person saying it, they're going to be deceiving you in some way. That's how it works. So English in one nation means one thing. Exactly the same words in another nation or another setting means totally the opposite. And the, the reason I open with that illustration is because that story sits right across or right upon the very issue that we are looking at today. And the issue we're looking at today is, can you take the Bible literally? Can you take the Bible literally? So I want to suggest to us this morning that truth works in different ways and in different settings according to where the truth is sitting. So in other words, if a truth sits in a particular place, that place will dictate the terms in which the truth has to be received by you. Um, Let me give you an example of how that might work from a a different scenario. Imagine, uh, we all know water, the chemical formula for water is H2O, don't we? It's H2O. It doesn't matter what setting water is in, if you got that in the lab it would be H2O. Now, water, as we all know, can exist in three different states. It can exist as a cloud or steam, a vapor in the air that hangs there. It can exist as a liquid, as we know, and it can exist as ice. Yeah? Yeah, you got it. So, (laughs) thanks, Pastor Mark. So, truth works exactly the same way. Truth works in different settings. It's always true, just like water is always H2O, but depending upon the setting dictates or tells you how you need to receive that truth. Let's start from there, uh, and let's kind of unpack what that might mean uh, as we go through. What I've done is I've put some buckets up on the stage here to show you different kinds of truth, because truth arrives at us in different buckets or from different places. 
So if I was going to say to you uh, about relationships truth, let me tell you a little bit about my nan. My nan was just the most amazing person. I knew her as Nana. Uh, she was called Mary. Uh, when I was growing up in Zimbabwe, she was the most fabulous person to go and stay with. And my granddad was as well. My granddad, Roy, he was great. But my nan was the sort of person who would plot and plan about when you were going to go and stay. She would stock up uh, Beano comics from the newspaper, you know, the weekly edition. And when I got there, there'd be a whole stack of Beano comics to read. There was no so- shortage of sweets. I, uh, I learned how to dance with her. Like she let me stand on her feet when I was like about five and she would kind of dance me around the room to the radio. She would say uh, quite, well, looking back on it, pretty embarrassing things. She had a particular phrase she used with me, which was, she would say, ooh, hello, Nikoi, me old fruit. She used to say, she used to grab me by the cheek and, you know, it's just the last thing a man ever, ever wants to have done to him. But as when you're five, that's kind of cool, isn't it? You're not looking at me like it's kind of cool. Anyway, never mind. But she really doted on me. I, I remember one time she went down to South Africa to get some marbles that you couldn't get in Zimbabwe. And I was the most popular kid in school for months as a result of having these marbles. She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. Now, relationships truth says there is nothing that you can do to take away from that relationship. That was true for me. She loved me to bits, and I doted on her. I would love going around to her house. She was a great lady to me, great grandparent, really, really good. And that was true in my existence and my history. Relationships, truth. And we all have relationships that really matter to us out here. You know, all of you have relationships that really matter to you and really speak to you, and they are true. There's nothing wrong with the truth of those relationships. History... So if we could summarize relationships, relationships is all about connection from encounter. History is all about facts from evidence. History is what happened when, who conquered who, who led this nation, who won that battle, who ousted somebody from power, who took over here. History is a series of events and and things that create facts, if you like, as we go through time. Now, there's nothing stopping us uh, from understanding the truth of history, Uh, A a piece of English history that you may or may not know is that the Normans, the French, anybody French in here this morning? One person is French. Okay, Um, they invaded England in 1066 and had a very famous battle, the Battle of Hastings, and King Harold died allegedly because he was shot in the eye by an arrow and the Normans won. The French beat the, the English and they took over England. I have been and stood in the very spot where Harold was supposed to have been slain. It's like a little flagstone in this grass, in this castle in the south of England. That's historical truth. It's facts based on evidence from the past that we can find. Science is all about establishing the properties of the physical and the natural world, mainly through experimentation, through doing experiments. Uh, we had a fantastic chemistry teacher in school, and he did a lesson one day, which I, remember, I always remember, was all about the properties of potassium. Potassium is quite volatile, and it has to be kept in a bottle uh, with uh, like special oil around it that has no water next to it, because when potassium is released into the air, or just put on a table, it starts to react with the water in the air that you can't see, but it's definitely there, and it starts to fizz and burn and all those kinds of things, and it starts to give off smoke. And so we were like egging him on, come on, yeah, show us this potassium. He put it on the table, and of course it started to catch fire, and it's quite exciting. We wanted him to do more, but that's the properties of the physical and the natural world, and you're going to see a lot of scientific truth uh, that's available for us to grab. 
testimony truth is all about statements from witnesses who were there. Testimony truth says if there's four or five people who saw a traffic accident and they went to a court to say what they saw, the judge would have to accept the evidence that they bring because they were there, they saw it. And so testimony truth is important. Uh, Let me give you an example of testimony truth. Um, I used to work in an IT company, and uh, one day we were coming home, driving down the M1, back from a job, me and my friend Wayne. Uh, Wayne was driving, and I was a passenger. And we were coming southbound on the M1, and uh, the M1's got a set of chevrons. They're like little arrows painted on the tarmac, and they're designed to keep you a good distance from the car in front. And they're in the the left-hand lane, in the middle lane, but not the the right-hand lane. As we approach this section, there's a sign saying... Keep two chevrons apart. And my friend Wayne turns to me and he says, did you know that there's 102 pairs of chevrons? And I'm like, Wayne, that's so, so boring that you know that. Like, have you actually counted these things? Is that true? And he said, yeah, me and my girlfriend were coming back from the cinema one night and we thought it'd be fun to count the chevrons. And so I thought, okay, I'll count them because there's nothing else to do. I'm on the journey. So I counted them and it turns out he's absolutely right. That is how... A testimony works. Somebody you know that you trust says something, maybe it's a bit weird or a bit odd, and then you go and check it out for yourself, and then you find, maybe to your surprise, that they're absolutely right, or they're absolutely true. That's what testimony does. A testimony is a statement from witnesses. Language is all about meanings from words. Uh, That's the last bucket over here. Now, I don't speak much Italian. But we have three Italian speakers in our team on BCC stuff. I bet you didn't know that. Paola speaks a bit of Italian. Well, Paola was born in Italy. Were you not born in Italy? Oh, I got that wrong in the first service. I'm so sorry. But you speak Italian, though, don't you? Yeah. So um, Paola speaks Italian. Uh, Luca speaks Italian. He's from Sicily. And also Simon uh, speaks Italian as well. And sometimes when we're explaining things on team, these guys will get round Simon, whose English is not as advanced as Luca's and Paola's, and they'll explain things to him. Language is a system of communicating truths from whatever bucket you're in for that language. So Italian is like a language bucket. And there's, hundred, well, there's millions, of, millions of ways of communicating with words and thousands of languages. And if you add history to that, there's been loads and loads of languages down through history as well. Now, it's when we take into account all the buckets, and there's probably some more buckets that you might be able to think of we could add on to this table and take it further either side, But it's when you take into account all the buckets that you get the fullest picture. That stands to reason, doesn't it? We're not people who only just focus in on the one bucket. We actually take into account truth from all of those different places. You with me so far? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, great. Let me show you a picture, a very famous picture, and I'll talk you through how how it is that we take all the different buckets and how we apply that. So that's the picture of the Mona Lisa probably the most famous painting in the Western world anyway. Uh, It hangs in the Louvre in France. Uh, The insurance value on it is just unbelievable numbers. Um, It was painted by a historical person. So if we went to history, we would know that Leonardo da Vinci painted that in, in about 1503, 1506, something like that, a long time ago. He definitely painted it. There's only about 15 paintings of his that survive. Another very famous painting of his is The Last Supper, a very famous painting of Jesus and the disciples all spread out along the table. Um, so that's another painting of his. But we know that he was a historical figure. We also know from the language side of things that he spoke Italian. 
he was part of the Italian Renaissance. And it's true to say that if he'd perhaps been a German or Dutch or born somewhere else, that country would have had more of a Renaissance influence than Italy would have done because he was such a prominent person and so uh, influential in his country of origin that the language and all the people around him who could understand him, that influenced that part of the world more. Now, science can tell us some stuff about the painting. Did you know, for instance, that the Mona Lisa is painted on poplar wood? It's not painted on canvas. It's on, painted on panel, a panel of wood. And if you wanted to date that, you could get your carbon dating methods out. You could look at the pigment in the paint. You could an- analyze that under a microscope. And the scientists would tell you, yeah, the paint that he used is consistent with the age of the painting. And you could find out information from a scientific standpoint. Anyone here seen that program uh, on the BBC, I think it is, called Fake or Fortune? You ever watch that at all? Sometimes they do this thing where they look at a piece of art and they try and understand whether it's a a fake or whether it's the genuine deal. And they get the scientists out to look at the composition of the paint and the age of the materials used to gain an insight as to whether uh, whether the painting is real or true or not. Relationships-wise, we've looked at some of the other ones, but relationships-wise... Oh, no, let me do testimony next. Testimony. Here's a a really interesting thing about the Mona Lisa, just relating to this for a a second further. Did you know that she has the initials LV painted in one eye? Did you not know that? And LV obviously stands for Leonardo da Vinci. But would you believe me if I told you that? You would believe me, hopefully, on the basis that I'm a minister, that I've done my homework, (laughs) that I'm honest... But if I told you that unusual fact, you'd take that away and you'd go, oh, well, Pastor Nick thinks that's right. Where do, why does he think that? You see, that's how testimony works. Testimony works because someone you trust tells you something and then you, you kind of build that into your understanding. If you don't trust a person, then their testimony is something you hold at arm's length. But you can go and research that and find out whether the LV initials in one of her eyes are there. Relationships. Let's look at relationships when it comes to the Mona Lisa. Who is she, first of all? We're not completely sure who she might have been. She's obviously clearly known to Leonardo da Vinci, um, and she posed for him for this amazing, iconic picture. We don't really know who she might be. And what is she smiling about? What is she smiling about? Loads of people have come up with all these different theories about why she might be smiling. I personally think she's packed away a couple of donuts. You know, she's got one in each cheek, and that's why she's, she's got, a, got her mouth shut, and she's grinning away, because she's just had, like, donuts for morning coffee. And eyebrows, where are her eyebrows gone? Like, that was a fashion thing back then. It's a bit opposite to today, isn't it, ladies? Painting our eyebrows on. You know, I'm just not making a big point, but I can see that. Relationships. So if we take all the buckets into consideration, you get a rounded picture of who, uh, of what this painting is all about. And you access the truths in it from a number of different points of view. Does that make sense? Do you, are you with me so far? Okay. Now, let's just, the reason I've taken some time to set this foundation is because I think what happens in our culture without God in, in, in the picture is that one of these things, or, or some of them, can become more prominent than they should do. And at the moment in our culture in the West, I would say that this one here, the science bucket, has way more prominence than it deserves or than it should. Science is held up as the great big explanation for all things. But actually, logic says that's not right. Science has nothing to say more than my relationship with my, about my relationship with my nan. What can science say about that? 
It doesn't add to the truth of that relationship. It doesn't take away from the truth of that relationship at all. Um, it doesn't really speak to history. Science can't say, well, okay, you know, it can't give a reason why King John was forced to sign the Magna Carta or why man flew to the moon or whatever. It doesn't add to that. It doesn't give an explanation for cause and effect and, and, and why people chose to do certain things. That will be more down to something like relationships, perhaps, or language even. So science has lots of limitations. And in our culture, we've grow, maybe we've grown used to this kind of seeping idea that's underneath everything, that science is really the explanation for everything. And it's not. And I just want to reestablish the fact that it's not. I actually think when you take God out of the equation... Things like this rise up, and they take a wrongful place, and they become, things become skewed, and you can't see straight anymore. So I'm going to take all that we've laid out so far and start to apply that to God's Word, to the Bible. How could we, in the same way that we might understand the Mona Lisa from looking at all these different buckets of truth, how might we understand the Bible from those different buckets of truth? Well, let's start with relationships over here. The Bible is about relationships. It's about relationships in huge measure. In fact, it's the story of God's attempts to relate to people. And it starts way back in in the beginning with Adam and Eve and his attempts to connect with them and them breaking that relationship and it not working. And then it carries on and the different episodes and history that we see in the Bible and the journey of that is God's repeated attempt to try to establish a connection with people that works. And we see so many times that connection reconnecting and then it breaking again. Uh, For example, the people of Israel get freedom and God brings them freedom through Moses and they go out. But in the wilderness, they're disobedient, aren't they? And so many of them die out. At another time, uh, God raises up judges in, in Israel's history because the people keep falling off their connection with God. And then he raises up leaders to bring them back into connection with God. And then in the New Testament, which is the front half of the Bible, the most recent part, we see God's really most dramatic and major and final attempt to bring us into connection with him. Uh, And and that's his attempt is to send a person who is a member of his own family out of relationship with his own family, who comes to the world, decides voluntarily to take on a human form, so stops being a spirit person and becomes a human person, grows up and then does a ministry and travels around talking about the kingdom of God and then volunteers himself to take all the wrong stuff that people have ever committed or done or said or thought on himself in order that this relationship with Father God can work. And many of us in this room would know that the name of that person to be Jesus. Jesus does that. He comes and he decides to have a relationship with us and he volunteers to do that so that we can connect with Father God. There's a lot of people around the world who have responded to the way that that works by having their own relationship with Jesus. Many of the people in this room would identify with that. And I would certainly say, I know who Jesus is and I am connected to him. Let's look at history briefly. History is uh, consistently in the Bible. uh, The historical events that we see in the Bible are confirmed by archaeology. Whenever the archaeologists get out there and they do digs and they do discoveries, what they find is um, that what the Bible has been saying 
has been proven true. Even just as recent as last Wednesday, uh, the Times published an article uh, where scientists and archaeologists find evidence for a kingdom called the Kingdom of Edom. And Edom was a place that was only mentioned uh, in the Bible up to that point. And there are so many historians and people who say, well, if it's in the Bible, I'm not really sure about that. But actually what happens is people are, start, are starting now to, to say, well, the, if the Bible says it, it's going to be there, it's going to be real, it's going to be true. In Luke's Gospel and in Acts, which was also written by Luke, I don't know if you know this, but he refers to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. And somebody did a, a detailed archaeological follow-up on all of those places and, he, and has confirmed all of them. Absolutely every single one has found that Luke is not wrong in any of the details that he shares in his writing. Now, you'd expect that, wouldn't you, from a doctor? When you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to be accurate. You want the doctor to know the details. And that comes through in Luke's writing. He is right on it. He is so specific, and he is very, very reliable. Um, There's another little example just to share with you. In Acts 17, uh, verse 6, Luke uses a word in the Greek that sounds like polytarch. And they translate it as city official. But for a very long time, people thought that Luke was making this word up or that it was just a a thing he had decided to write. But what's happened is historians have found that this word polytarch has turned up in many, many places since they started looking for it. Uh, They they found it on inscriptions. They found it on archaeological digs. What I'm saying is that every time the Bible says something, archaeology catches up with it sooner or later. And it's not round the other way. So just by comparison, let me, I'm not being unkind, but I'll just say to you, just by way of contrast, from the Mormon faith, in the Book of Mormon, it is not possible to find any Mormon cities or people or names or places or artifacts or even scriptures anywhere. You cannot find those things. You can't go out and look for the things that are mentioned in the Mormon bit of the Bible, which I believe is a book that's added on to the end. It's just not there. It doesn't exist. It doesn't withstand this kind of truth bucket because the truth isn't there. And that's how we can tell that the Bible can be relied upon. Science is an interesting one because really the Bible is not a science textbook. It's just not. And, uh, you know, it's not going to work if we try and apply scientific method like experiments and labs and, and all that stuff to the Bible because it's not primarily about that. And we need to drop that concern and that worry that, that science is trying to make itself the way we understand everything because it's not. But I would say a couple of things about, the, about what science has, con- has found that confirm where the Bible comes from. So one of the first things to tell you is that um, DNA in women can all be traced back to one woman. Did you know that? Mitochondrial DNA reveals scientifically that every single woman on the planet can trace their ancestry back to one woman. That's really fascinating. And the same is true for men. The, the Y chromosome in a man can be traced all the way back to one man. Now, atheistic or secular scientists will say, well, yeah, that that single woman may not have necessarily existed at the same time as the single man. 
you, you get the deal. But it certainly doesn't rule out the idea of creation or the idea of Adam and Eve at one point in history. Not at all. What scientists are also beginning to realize is that the universe had a beginning. For many, many decades, you may not know this, but for many decades, that the scientists believe that the universe just continued to exist forever. Forever back into the past and will carry on forever into the future. Now that thinking is changing. And scientists are beginning to acknowledge that the world and creation has a beginning. No question about that. Now, I personally don't see a massive conflict between science and the Bible. But it has to be said that there's loads to say about that area, which we'll have to leave for another message. Uh, And we can look at that perhaps in one of these talks another time. Let's look at testimony truth. Uh, This bucket here. The Bible is packed with testimony. Remember, testimony truth is statements that you can rely on from eyewitnesses. That's what testimony truth is. And so in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, we we don't just have one account of Jesus' life. We have four, four accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them take you on a journey from what they've seen and heard and also what their friends saw and heard at the time. So from people who were present. That's what an eyewitness testimony does. They saw things for themselves. And remember, if several people testify to the same thing in a court of law, the jury and the judge have to say, well, that is very likely it's like looking like it's fact. Yeah? Are you following me? Are you still with me? Yeah? Do you get that? Okay. Now, so John, in his gospel, the fourth gospel, he writes this at one particular point towards the end of the gospel of John. And he says this, and this is really interesting what he says. He says, but when they came to Jesus... Uh, this is the soldiers who were behind, you know, organizing his crucifixion uh, on the Good Friday. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, why is that detail recorded? Well, that detail's there because in crucifixion, uh, it, the, the, the agony and the drawn-out nature of crucifixion was so much that people would sometimes spend you know, several days dying. It was one of the most horrendous forms of capital punishment that has ever existed. And in fact, the Romans themselves eventually phased it out because it was so horrible. But what they would do is if the crucifixions were were going on, like the death was going on too long, and they could see that the people up on the cross were struggling too much, sometimes out of a kind of weird compassion, what they would do is they'd get a massive kind of wooden mallet and they would bash the legs of the people on the cross. Now, what that would do is it would mean that the person would then slump and that they would not be able to push themselves back up into position, which is what you need to do to be able to breathe or try and breathe when you're on the cross. And so basically, the soldiers would finish people off who were still alive by breaking their legs. They would slump down and then they would die of asphyxiation. That's what happens with the cross. So what John is saying is that he... He's reporting that when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, why did they do that? Why did they not do that? Because he was already dead. And instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, the doctors in our congregation will know that under severe trauma, blood in the human body can gather around the, in a sack around the lungs and the heart, and the water and the, and the serum in the blood separate out a bit. And so blood goes much more sticky and dark, and the water in the blood, the plasma in it, separates out, and it looks like water. Uh, and so for the soldier to do that in Jesus' side 
is confirmation of that fact. And actually, that in itself was something that was disputed until medical science caught up with that fact. People didn't understand why that was in John's Gospel for centuries. But it's true, and it's there. And then it says, the man who saw it has given his testimony. And remember, testimony is facts from people who were there who saw it. Statements that come from people who were able to witness what went on. And it says, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. That's the reason that it's there. Given all the different languages that there are, past and present, it's quite possible that all the different meanings that have been transmitted between us as people exceed the billions. There's no question of that. But when we come to the word literal itself, we don't always have to say things literally for people to get our meaning. In fact, I want to say to you that literal truth is quite rare. Let's imagine you had a friend and your friend rings you up and says, oh, I'm heartbroken about my relationship. You're not going to ring 999, are you? Well, you might, but it depends on how severe it is, I guess. But you're not going to ring 999 because you know heartbroken means an emotional state. It doesn't mean a literal state. And the reason I say that is because so often in language we use terms that are not literal, and yet there's no problem understanding the truth of what's going on, is there? No problem at all. In fact, I'd say literal truth doesn't happen that often. So our job, when we come to read the Bible, is we have to understand when are things being meant literally, and when are things meant in other ways, i.e. non-literal ways. How does truth work in each of those ways? Um, let, me, uh, let me give you an example from the Bible itself. Sometimes when Jesus was speaking to people, they themselves did not understand whether he was being literal or using another means of getting truth across. Um, so an example would be there was a teacher of the law called Nicodemus, and Nicodemus goes to Jesus to talk about, well, to talk about the Holy Spirit, really. And Jesus uses a phrase, born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand And he says, so, like, does a person have to go back into their mother's womb? And that's the literal meaning, isn't it? But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not literal, I mean. It's I'm giving you a picture of what happens in the Spirit. So do you understand that to say that the Bible is all literally true just wouldn't be right? Meaning comes across in all sorts of different ways and in different means. Now, that is hard sometimes. It's not always straightforward to understand what's meant. And actually, churches themselves have found this hard. Um, towards the end of our service, you have a chance to take communion uh, today. Um, but for the Roman Catholics, the bread and the blood that are represented in communion, they're physically real to them. They would say that's actually Jesus' body and his actual blood, and that by a miracle, that that's what's put into those vessels over there. Now, we don't say that. We say that that's a symbolic representation. But actually, both work in a kind of way. I don't really agree that that could be possible that the Roman what the Roman Catholics say but it doesn't take away from the power of what it is they're saying do you understand the issue here sometimes literal truth is right very often literal truth is not the way to assess the Bible we have to understand how the meanings are coming across to us let me within language there's lots of different sub buckets if you like so you've got emphasis that's when you do something when you say something really 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 strongly to get your point across So Jesus does this quite a lot. He's quite a strong teacher. 
He says things like, if your right hand uh, sins, cut it off so that it can't sin anymore. Now, we're not expecting you guys to cut off your right hand when you've sinned. We all know that Jesus is saying something very strongly to make you sit up and go, oh, wow, sin is drastically bad. I need to make sure I'm sorting this out. I've actually got a fitness DVD where the guy on the fitness DVD tells off somebody who's slacking at the back, and he says, I'm going to break your arms later. And it makes me laugh. I mean, you know, the guy is pretty lazy on this DVD. Makes me makes me feel, you know, a bit better. Um, but he, he says this to this guy, but there's no way he literally means he's going to break his arms. What he's saying is, put some effort in. You're being lazy. You know, do the work. And he's saying it in a drastic way to get his attention. That's how emphasis works. And we see that quite a bit in the Bible. We also do see literal truth as well. When Jesus says... If you're starting a relationship in your head that's got a lustful content and it's not with your wife or your husband, that's adultery. That's the beginning. That's the embryo, the start point for adultery. And I would say that that's literally true. Jesus is just speaking plainly there. And what he's telling us is literally what's happening. Yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah? Are you following me? Another, another form of getting truth across uh, from the Bible is parables. Jesus taught in non-literal ways using stories called parables that are very powerful in packing a punch when it comes to truth. There's all sorts of parables you might think of where you thought, wow, that's really helpful to me uh, in understanding, let's say something like the parable of the prodigal son that gives you an insight into the heart of God. And yet it's not a literally true story. But the truth is still in it. Do you understand? So in some ways, that question, can we take the Bible literally, is only part of the story and only the entry point into the debate. There's another sub-bucket of language, which is picture language. Picture language is when uh, the Bible uses a picture to try and explain a characteristic of a person. Um, So a great example might be uh, that when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does he actually mean Jesus is a little white fluffy lamb skipping around in a field? No, he doesn't. What he means is that Jesus is the sacrificial entity by which God is going to make people right with himself. And at the same time, there's another picture for Jesus, another picture if you like, which is that Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, how can Jesus be a a lamb and a good shepherd at the same time? He can't. But it works if you understand that this is picture language designed to give you an idea of some of Jesus' qualities and his characteristics. That he is a good shepherd to us, that we can follow him, uh, that he, we know his voice, that he looks after us when we get into trouble. And that works from picture language, but it doesn't work on a literal basis. You with me still? You look as if you're drinking in loads of information, and if you are, that's great. That's what you need to do. Prophecy. Prophecy, yet again is a special kind of language. Let me give you an example from Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, it says that not one of his bones will be broken. Now, that was written hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross and hundreds of years before John then writes that the soldiers didn't break Jesus' bones. So at the time that David, or whoever wrote Psalm 34, wrote that, he was writing something that couldn't quite, he couldn't quite fully see it himself. Which is pretty weird if you're thinking about trying to make a communication. 
Because you've got, you've got the bit that you're saying yourself, and then God's adding a layer on top that only comes true hundreds of years later. So that's not strictly speaking literal truth, but truth is nevertheless coming through from that source. Got one more in here. Letters. The New Testament particularly is filled with letters to people. A letter you know, to individuals or a letter to a church that says, you need to do this, you need to watch out for that, uh, look out for, for those people over there, make sure you hang on to your faith. All of those things will appear in letters, particularly from people like Paul, uh, to the different churches in the New Testament time. A letter works because you're writing to address some things, and a letter works because there's something that's happened that you're responding to. So the way that you understand the truth in a letter is you imagine that there's another half to the conversation that you can't quite hear. It's a bit like listening to somebody on the phone and you get the sense of what it is they're saying, but you can't hear the other end of the conversation, but you know what the conversation's about and you can fill in the gaps. And so the truth in a letter comes through in the gaps and trying to understand what it is that Paul's writing to say. Does that make sense? Okay. Picture language. Have we done that one? Yes, we did that one. Sorry. Came out of order there. That's good. So how and where will we land our message today? What are we saying? I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come back up. If you don't mind, please, worship team. I want us to have an immense confidence in the Bible. I want us to be very, very confident about it. I want you to feel that this animal here has limitations because it does. It absolutely does, okay? It really does. Now, I'm not knocking science, but I think it needs to occupy its rightful place again. When we understand truth comes from all these places, and particularly when we understand how truth works in language with all these ways of doing truth, we can have an incredible confidence about the Bible. Here are three things that I think that can really help us. Truth works in different ways, just like water has different forms. You can see that up on the stage here. Language reveals truth in lots and lots of different ways, not just this one, not just literal. And the Bible is fully inspired by by God, but the truth in it might take lots of different forms for us to understand, not just the literal form. I'm going to end with the story of a person um, and you guys can come back and do your thing. That's great. I, I'm going to end with the, with the story of a person from the Bible where his journey was about some of these buckets. Relationships, testimony, history. It's the guy called James. And James was Jesus' half-brother. I want you to imagine being in Jesus' family for a minute. Jesus is the oldest because he got born first. And then Mary went on to have several other kids. And James is one of the brothers in that family. Now, being so close to Jesus, you'd think that that would be an incredible thing, wouldn't you? I mean, that's just incredible. Actually, in Jesus' family, around him while he's growing up, all of that stuff. But that's not how James took it. James was like, well, you could call yourself the son of God, but I just think you're a, I think you're a, 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 I think it's a scam. I don't believe in it. And imagine for a minute, this is kind of true to reality, isn't it? If one of your brothers or your sisters started claiming they were God, yeah, you'd be like, yeah, no, you're not. (laughs) Straight away. But it's when James goes to the cross, uh, sorry, Jesus, sorry, goes to the cross and gets crucified. 
that's the point where James can then say, see, I told you so. My brother was just pulling the wool over your eyes. And you see, there's, there's a non-literal phrase right there. But you all know what I mean. Jesus is just a, he's a scam. Look, he's died. But that doesn't happen. James actually becomes his follower. He actually starts following Jesus after the crucifixion and then Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because Jesus visits him. James has a testimony to share suddenly. The relationship wasn't great. He didn't believe who Jesus was. And then everything changes and he starts to follow him. Now, I find that incredibly compelling. If you've got a person against somebody for a while, you have to look really closely and carefully at why it is they suddenly change their mind. What could have caused that change of mind? I think nothing less than a crucifixion followed by a resurrection. And then James goes on to become a leader of a church in Jerusalem and he writes a letter that finds its way into history. It finds its way into the Bible. And there's a letter from James in the Bible. And guess what? The beginning of the book of James, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And we read that and we go, what does that mean? That's really harsh. I mean, like, thanks for the trials, James. But, you know, nobody here loves a trial, do they? That's hard. But when you understand that James was forced to change his mind, you can see that actually the trial he went through of having a change of mind became something that was his joy, became something that he suddenly realized the truth. Let's all stand a minute. Let's all stand. And I want to ask you a question this morning. As we stand, could you be like James this morning? Could you be somebody with a lot of skepticism in here this morning and thinking to yourself, hmm, I'm really not sure. But then, but then when you meet Jesus, would you be really willing and open to change your mind about him? Like if we prayed in church today, maybe this applies to you specifically and literally, if we prayed that God would do something to make himself known to you this week, Would you be open to changing your mind like James did? Would you be really open to that? You know, sometimes we pray for people and things change. And then they're like, wow, how did that happen? And we say, well, it was because we know God. Out of relationship, we know a person who can make everything fine, who can sort stuff for you. by by, If we pray to this person out of relationship, he will intervene on your behalf and things will be different. Would you be willing to change your mind about that if you're a skeptic right now? Yeah. Because if you're not willing to change your mind and God moves in your life, you might miss the best ever thing that you could have ever invited into your life and heart, which is the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to sing, and uh, we're going to sing words to music, which are like prayers to music, like Pastor Mark often says, and that's going to be led for us by Kevin. But while we sing, I want you to think about that question. If this is true... How's it going to change me? How's it going to change me on the inside? Let's sing. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.